a condition of my young child. You know, we're told, you're a big boy now. Big boys don't cry. So we're told it's weak to cry. You were being silly by saying something attached to, like, a mental health. It doesn't... You don't really feel that confident in it. I was very aware of mum's not quite right. Well, I don't know what right is because... You know, the bottom line was that was how it was talked about. The population is open to mental health service. So currently, we've got over 4,200 people on our caseload. And it's helped me to deal with what happened 30 years ago. This is Island Mentality the second and final part of a look into the island's mental health provision and needs. Last week, we looked at child and adolescent mental health. Tonight, I'm going to explore what's out there in adult services and support. I'm 28 years old, and for this exercise, I'll say I'm struggling with anxiety. I'm going to start where most of us millennials do, Google. I Google Anxiety Isle of Man. The top result is the Isle of Man government webpage. It shows me four links to websites that might help me. The Mental Health Foundation, Mind, Rethink Mental Illness and the Royal College of Psychiatrists. I try all the links on this government website and not one link is showing me a support system on the island. I tell this to the Minister for Health and Social Care, David Ashford. So I googled Anxiety Isle of Man. The government website did come up very quickly. However, on that, there's lots of a link to information and guidance, but there's no actual link to any services on the island or no clear indication that I could see of how I would approach it. It's within the uh, five, year, five to ten year mental health strategy. Uh, we have a strategy going right through to about 2025. Um, I'd love to do everything at once. That would be an ideal world. We could pick up a strategy document, shove it in, but there's a reason it's spread over five to ten years because practically that's what it takes to deliver. But our new step approach... It doesn't take ten years to put a link on a website, though. No, we're not talking about a link on a website. To be honest, a lot of those who end up in crisis or with anxiety, what they want to do is actually contact someone, not just a link on a website to any advice or anything else. They need to refer themselves in. And people know how, you know, a lot of people do know how to refer themselves in. But anxiety as well, what you tend to find with anxiety is it's not an issue in isolation. You tend to find it's potentially the cause of other issues. And again, one of the things we've got to get over with mental health is putting people in boxes saying, well, that person's suffering from anxiety. They might be I'm treating them for the anxiety. They may well be suffering from depression. But we also need to address the causes of that anxiety. And again, this comes back to the well-being strategy as well, about early interventions and public health and actually teaching people how to manage their own well-being. I spoke to Luke Adebaye. He told me about his mental health journey, which began a few years ago. So it was something I didn't really notice myself, first of all, um, and it almost came the norm, the, the experiences I was feeling, you know, so, like, becoming really hot, um, panicking quite a lot, um, not sleeping, not eating very well, um, and it almost became normal for me. And it wasn't until I went quite bad within the office my actual manager f- noticed the symptoms and thought it was time for me to go to a doctor and check what was going on because she noticed it in me. When she noticed, was that a wake-up call to yourself as well then? Yeah, so, and when I put two and two together, you then start to think, oh, this has been happening for quite some time. But because it was such a normal thing that would happen on a daily basis, I would just think it's just, 
it's just fine. And it it was almost a stigma that you thought that you were being silly by saying something to, attached to like a mental health. It doesn't, you don't really feel that confident in it. Well, I didn't feel like that until until my manager talked to me about it. And what was your reaction then when you had that conversation? Um, to be honest, initially it was a bit scary because it was like someone else had noticed. So I kind of thought, what what's everyone else thinking? Um, but once I actually started to speak about it, the weight off my shoulders was amazing and you know, I didn't even, in the end, didn't even have to go on any form of medication with the doctor. I did it all quite naturally because speaking about it made me feel comfortable in the position that I was in. Um, and that's where, where I've got to where I am today. There's a phrase that we all know, but we just don't associate with mental health. And it's a problem shared is a problem halved. David Beanie is from Breaking the Silence, a company he set up after battling with mental health problems for more than 30 years. As a mental health counsellor, all of my clients are in therapy because of something they've held on to for years and sometimes for good reason. We call it talking therapy because the moment people start to talk, they generally start to feel better. When you hold on to something, it gets heavier and heavier and heavier. The better we get at talking about things, uh, the healthier we become. As we know, uh, with men in particular, there's two horrible statistics. Uh, nearly 8 out of 10 suicides are male. And the biggest killer of men under 50, for men who die under 50, is, is suicide. More than road traffic accidents and more than cancer. And it's because men are rubbish at talking about things. We're conditioned from a young child. You know, we're told, you're a big boy now. Big boys don't cry. So we're told it's weak to cry. But we've got to get better at displaying our emotions that's why so many male men end up taking their own lives, so sadly. Phrases like, be a man, man up. I've talked about to other people about how harmful they can be. And interestingly enough, a lot of people I've spoken to in making this programme have been men opening up about their mental health. Mm. Are you seeing a change there? There's without doubt, there is some momentum. We've got a long, long way to go in terms of the stigma of mental health. Everybody these days is so familiar with Google Images. And if you put into Google Images physical health, what comes up is amazing bodies, really athletic bodies. You haven't put in great physical health, you've just put in physical health. But if you put mental health into Google Images, all that comes up is people in serious distress, pulling their hair out. They should be the same. Everyone has health, both mental and physical. Why should one image be so positive and the other be so negative? Therein somewhere lies the reason why people just can't talk about mental health. Um, I get so angry at statistics I read about one in four of us every year is going to suffer with poor mental health. Um, I think that fuels the stigma. Everybody has physical health. Everybody has mental health. At some stage every year, your and my physical health could be better. At some stage every year, your and my mental health could be better. It's one in one. When something becomes one in one, it gets easier to talk about. We help to destigmatize environments. When we go around saying one in four, we all sit there thinking, I wonder who the one is. And that just fuels the stigma of mental health. I don't think people should underestimate the impact of how they may be feeling emotionally. Claire Porter is head of HR business within the Isle of Man government. We've been doing an awareness course for managers, so first-line managers, to get a feel whether it's something that managers will find useful. Because what we've identified is people don't want to speak up if they, if they aren't feeling OK. So by giving the managers the tools to be able to ask those questions of colleagues and staff and, man and whoever manages them as well in terms of what does it look like if somebody's 
got an issue and getting them to actually speak up. For me, I'm brought up in an environment when if you didn't have a smiley, happy face on, it didn't matter what was going on behind. So um, it's really, and from, from family members who had issues and kept quiet and they became serious mental health issues that led them to be um, in hospital or with, you know, uh, with medication to help to get some support. That I think we, it's, that's, I guess for me personally, why to speak up as soon as possible is best. I mean, I can tell that it's obviously something really close to your heart. Yeah, absolutely. And as I say, it affected my life from probably the age, how old was I? I was 11 when my mum first went into hospital um, because she was she had a nervous breakdown. And in them days, they gave you um, electric shock treatment and a variety of different tablets and stuff like that. Um, and I think from that age onwards, I was very aware of mum's not quite right. Well, I don't know what right is because, you know, the bottom line was that was how it was talked about in them days. Or leave mum, she's crying in the corner. Oh, dad, mum's crying again. Oh, she'll be fine in a minute, you know. And absolutely now I look back on that and think, knowing what I now know in terms of how you can support somebody, that's why I think it's so important now. And especially around children, you know, to understand that it's okay to speak up. Whereas in my mind, I felt that that was really bad. So I would be uh, completely the opposite because I didn't want to be like mum. So for me, I think that had quite an important impact. Hello, my name's Julie Bernion and I'm Health Improvement for the Mental Health Service. From September, when we've looked at our data, 3.5% of the population um, is open to the mental health service. So currently, we've got over 4,200 people on our caseload. In September, we had 4,233 appointments across all of the mental health services. And just to give some idea about where the main focus of our work is and the step model we work to, at the higher steps, which is step five, is where people have severe mental illness that warrants an off-island placement, we've got about 16, 17 people. Inpatient facilities, we've got 26 beds, so we can only have 26 people actually in the inpatient area. The rest of that 4,200 people are in the community, so they're being supported by our services in the community. And we had 600 referrals in September over the whole mental health service. Some examples from my own area, which is the Step 2 Counselling and Therapy Service, we've currently got 141 people on our waiting list and we're currently seeing 120. As an island, we spend roughly around about 9.9% of the health budget on mental health. The Health Minister, David Ashford. That compares with 9.5% in the UK and the global average for governments is just over 2%. So we are spending, in terms of our percentages, more than most other jurisdictions. Compared to other mental health services, but compared to physical health services, that is a minority. But that's also the other point, because what we need to get to is we need to get to a step change where mental health is as important as physical health and combining the two up. The department's already taken steps in that regard by creating the new division this year as well. So we have now a joined-up community division. So mental health isn't just a separate entity within the department. It now forms part of a wider division which allows more joined-up working. 
The police, they've now have two mental health dedicated nurses at the HQ in Douglas. That began as a pilot scheme. It's now permanent in Douglas. Is that it? Are we going to see it rolled out across the island? In terms of that, I mean, obviously, the crucial thing is for the police to have that support. Um, one of the things I said when I first came in as minister, and also I said when I was a backbencher, was I was concerned that the police didn't have appropriate support in place. Our mental health team has been working very hard with the chief constable to ensure that support can be there. And I think it's a huge step forward that the police can feel confident now that we are there to support them and also give them advice on how to deal with mental health conditions and patients. There has to be a redefinition of policing. Crime used to account for more than two-thirds of what the police dealt with. It now accounts for about a quarter, between 20% and 25% of what we do. Chief Constable Gary Roberts. So that means the rest of what we do is either road traffic collisions, and that's, a, that's maybe 10% of what we do. The rest is, is social stuff around dealing with people who are in crisis, and that's people who, who've... Uh, got a drink problem or a drugs problem or who've got poor mental health or who suffer from all three or who are victims in their own home of domestic abuse. Those are the sorts of things that we deal with now and our approach hitherto has been around how we deal with crime but the three quarters of the rest of the things we do are more important in many ways and getting into that, if we get it right, will further reduce crime. So our colleagues in, in mental health have given us two workers. They work with us. They provide absolutely first-rate support to police officers. But importantly, they're doing things in the community that in the past police officers would have done. So where somebody's in crisis, the police often go, and often that's the, that's the right thing to do. But the mental health workers advise the police, but also are there for the people who find themselves in crisis. And, and the success of it, for me, is manifest, and it's something that I want to build on and really I see it as a template for future cooperation. You are always going to end up with cases that are going to escalate. Um, you know, as much early intervention as you put in, it's not the you know, it's not the magic pill, it's not going to cure everything. There is always going to be those cases that escalate. But that is precisely why we employ professionals in this field. Um the psychiatric support has expanded as well. We've got more mental health nurses um coming through and being trained now. The six that are due to graduate into the system in September. Oh sorry, have graduated, sorry, I should say into the system in September. Um and Basically, that's the important thing. It's about professional assessments. Will those professional assessments always be right? No, it's never going to be a hundred percent. But we, but we've got to focus on those that are potentially suicidal or self-harming, and sometimes, frustratingly, that does mean a longer waiting time for those that are classed at more low level, where there's behavioural issues. Um, but we do have to focus our resources on those that we feel are the more instantaneous cases Some days, things just take way too much of my energy I look up in the Two weeks before my breakdown, unknowingly, I was tearing up most mornings on my way to work and we've now found out that this was the beginnings of an anxiety attack. This is Lisa, not her real name. She's 28 and her words have been voiced by someone else. Then one morning... I couldn't calm myself down. I was hyperventilating, crying, shaking. I had to pull over several times to try and calm down. And eventually I realised that the closer I was getting to work, the worse I was. So I stopped and told my boss I couldn't make it in. I was booked into the doctors the next morning and then diagnosed with depression and also suffering from anxiety. 
I was referred to mental health and then given a month off due to work-related stress and I was prescribed medication. You were signed off for more time. Did your treatment change at all? I had a letter from mental health saying I was on the waiting list. I was asked to visit my doctor every two to three weeks to see how things were going. At the first checkup appointment, my doctors thought I needed to see someone sooner and they added this to my notes. I then received a letter from mental health saying that they'd received the doctor's notes but were unable to prioritise my case and so I'd just remain on the waiting list. How did your GP help personally as opposed to what he was professionally uh, obliged to do? Every few weeks I go in for a chat and advice and I, I know it's not really what the GPs are there to do but every time I go in I leave feeling a bit better mainly I think because I know a professional is listening and can give me some appropriate advice. How important have you found it to just be able to talk to somebody, a professional? I think it's very important. Luckily, I have incredibly supportive family and friends around me to talk to for cuddles, tea, dinners, or just checking up on me. So I have a support network in place. But some people who are in a similar or worse situation don't have that, which is terrifying to think some only have their GP to speak to. In my case, and I think it's the same for others, I genuinely don't want to burden people with my problems. I feel immense guilt if I give in to my emotions and divulge some of my demons onto my friends or family. Everyone has their own life to think and worry about. No matter how often people say they're there for you, as lovely as that is, I just don't want to upset them. In a way, seeing the GP, because they've experienced other patients and lots of problems professionally, feels like they're used to this kind of thing and would be less likely to be affected by my issues. It's very small steps. I've got to be in a better place to be able to feel remotely comfortable discussing my little boxes. As the weeks go on, I hope my barriers will start to come down and by the time I get to see a counsellor, I'll be ready to tackle whatever it is my mind's going to throw at me. But what I must add is that it seems the Isle of Man Mental Health Service is very good at working with those in crisis. Sometimes it's within hours, but usually within a day of crisis that they're there. So that side of it is amazing. However, I can't help but feel if there were more professionals to deal with those who aren't in crisis state, there wouldn't be as many people getting to that point. The phrase that it's okay not to be okay is really helping a number of people. David Beanie from Breaking the Silence. We all think we have to be so perfect in life. We're so hard on ourselves. But there's no doubt that you inspire people when you share your vulnerability. I spent 30 years trying to find a cure to reduce my feelings of panic and anxiety. And I never thought I'd find the cure. And cure's a good word because I'll never be cured. But I have found the answer as to why I can now do what I do and speak, for example, to you now without worrying about having a panic attack. And it's because I now I allow myself to have a panic attack. And therefore, by allowing myself to have one, I'm showing myself kindness. I'm being compassionate to myself. So I've discovered what they call self-compassion. When you discover self-compassion, you relax yourself. And therefore, ironically, you don't end up having a panic attack because you're being kind and you're not putting yourself under so much pressure. So discovering self-compassion has really been the answer to me in terms of helping me with my, my personal mental health. Do you think people tend to blame themselves for any 
as we've talked about panic attacks, low mood, anxiety, depression, because of the stigma that's there, they feel it's something negative. Experience as a counsellor tells me that most mental health issues come from your, your childhood. And invariably, the worse your mental health, the less you like yourself. We seem to find it uncomfortable in life to really love ourselves. But it's all about becoming your true self and being who you really are. But the least we like ourselves, we go further and further away from being who we truly are. And we, we like ourselves less and less. When someone's recovering from poor mental health, they gradually start to like themselves again and hopefully eventually fall in love with themselves again. But to love other people, you've really got to love yourself first. It is that analogy on the aeroplane that when the oxygen masks come down, you should put them on yourself first so that you can look after and love other people around you. The most important person to look after in life is ourselves. And we've got to, we've got to work harder at looking after our mental well-being particularly. We tend to focus on our physical health, but our mental health drives everything. When you're in a good place mentally, that's when you join a gym. That's when you start a diet. When you're in a bad place mentally and you don't like yourself, that's when you comfort eat and some people sadly stop eating altogether and become bulimic or anorexic. So our priority in life should be to look after number one. I'm sure, to quote a cliche, that's so much easier said than done. Absolutely. <laughs> it goes back again, you said it just now, is that... Um, we struggle to like ourselves, you know, we, we put others first and that worst phrase we can ever hear is pull yourself together, man up. So by suddenly saying to yourself, well, I've got to love myself, is, is very difficult to do if you're not in a good place. I get so frustrated that if I woke up this morning with a bad throat, I think about going to see my doctor within 24 hours. If I woke up this morning with symptoms of depression, I would wait on average six to eight years before I get professional help. Because we just don't go and talk about things because we just we just don't treat mental health in the same way we, we look after our physical health. I'm Max Born and Bred. I had a, a messy adolescence, got into drinking drugs, ended up in the old Bellamona, ended up in prison, and then when I was thirty three I decided to turn my life around. Graham Klukas set up the trauma recovery group Quing, focusing on rehabilitation, reintegration and recovery. I sort of realised there was this like hole in provision that nobody was doing something like, which was just normal in the UK, and started talking to two or three of my friends and we cared enough and we started Quing. I suppose this is very much born from you having that moment where you realised you wanted to change your life. Do you, do you know why that happened? Uh, so, I, in many ways, I've been trying to change my life for about, I don't know, on and off, maybe most of it, if that makes any sense. And then one day, I just got fed up of the services and the people who were meant to be helping me and walked away and went on this amazing journey. Time has come too close to shore. I um suffered from child abuse when I was in the UK and it only came to light last year because I'd buried it so I struggle with PTSD and a friend of mine who runs a church and he had spotted an article about the formation of Queen and thought that that would be a brilliant avenue for me to to work through my my issues and it has 
And as I've come through my process and, and, and accepted what has happened, I now want to use my experiences and my recovery to help anybody else that's in that situation because I think it, it's an underlooked side of mental health. So I'm, I'm here, I'm with Queen to stand up and say, look, yeah, it happened to me and I can help if I can help anybody else that comes to terms with what happened to them. It's been very hard, but it's also been very exhilarating and very empowering. And it's helped me to deal with what happened 30 years ago to now get my life back again. I imagine for a lot of people it's those first steps that are the most daunting. How did you overcome that? By talking about it openly. People think that you've only got poor mental health when you're diagnosed with um, schizophrenia or bipolar or anxiety or depression. But when you're going through a period where you're not sleeping very well or you've got low energy or you're struggling to concentrate, that is poor mental health. We're all on the spectrum somewhere. Um, if we accept that, then it's going to get easier to talk about it in the same way we talk about physical health. In making these programmes, I've been honestly overwhelmed with how people have truly opened up to me and shared their very personal experiences. Although the conversation has clearly started, talking about our mental health appears to be the very first step to recovery and indeed the very hardest. As I've said previously, this is just a snapshot of what's happening here in the Isle of Man and there is plenty more going on that I haven't been able to discuss. And if you'd like to get in touch for whatever reason, please do so and I'll help in whatever way I can. For now though, thank you again for listening. Have a very good evening and please keep talking. Oh.